0: Um, I want to start the habit of um, praying for our nation at the beginning of our services, and and also just I know that many of you know, but it's it's kind of interesting in a in a congregation our size, um, there are several people in our church who are um, in the hospital in the are, are even uh, intubated and and on ventilators, and uh, and so we want to be special prayer for them in particular and their families, and uh, um, so we want to just make sure we're praying for them and also. Um, especially as we're, guys, we're about to move into a section of 1 Peter that, in which Peter challenges us to consider suffering um, an honor. Um, there are there are several um, hundred missionaries in Afghanistan who, from the world's perspective, are trapped behind enemy lines. From their perspective, um, are working behind enemy lines. And uh, and one this week there was one who wrote and, and commented on. How much they were honored that Christ had given them the opportunity to suffer with Him in the gospel, and so just the reminder that we need to be; those seeds need to be planted in us that we would grow up to have that mindset as well. And so um, I want to want us to pray this morning there are a lot of things to be praying for, Father, um, as we as we look back and remember um, uh, a pretty horrific terrorist attack um, twenty years ago, and all the different dominoes. That have fallen since then. Um, Lord, the, the world seeks to find um, their best and the nations rage and they plot and they scheme. Um, and the truth is, uh, Lord, you sit in heaven and you see it all. Um, and it's, it's not something that troubles you. Um, you are totally at peace in the midst of, of human scheming. Father, your gospel transcends um, all of these different things. And so, Lord, I, I want to lift up our nation I want to lift up that you would clearly, over the last few years, we've seen our nation um, really lose any sense of attachment to the truth and the power of your word. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that you would, you would bring us back from that, that you would bring an awakening. And um, we've not had one of those in several decades, and our nation, I think, is in need again. So we pray that you would sweep revival across this nation to glorify your own name. Lord, I pray for the missionaries around the world um, Christians um, struggling and suffering and being persecuted around the world. And Lord, I pray that even now you will begin to grow in us the mindset that it is a great honor to suffer for your name. Um, Lord, as we are likely to face more challenges um, here in this nation as well, I pray that you would, um, you would guide us to be prepared to have the mindset that your, uh, your child, Peter, challenged us to. So Lord, I pray these things in Your Son's magnificent name. And for those who are struggling and who are sick, um, I pray Your healing hand and grace on their families. Bring them back to us, Lord, that we can celebrate together Your faithfulness. We do so in Your Son's name. Amen. Um, One, thanks to Craig Langemeyer. He was in the first service for teaching last week. He did an excellent job, especially husbands. If you did not hear that sermon, I would encourage you to hunt it down um, and listen to it, watch it, uh, maybe two or three times. Um, especially his pro tips are of great value. I would really encourage you to, uh, to go back and listen to those and remind yourself of those and, you know, tattoo them on your arm um, write them on your mirror, that kind of stuff. Um, we need those constant reminders. I will tell you, a funny thing happened this morning preparing the sermon. Um, we're not always, when I'm able to get the sermon finished and turned in um, to the team and, and when John and his team are, are choosing uh, what well, the songs they feel like God is leading them to lead us with on Sunday mornings, it's really fascinating. Sometimes they don't align in the order you would want them to. And so this week, for example, I was finishing up the sermon and realized it was too late to try to throw a curveball at John. I do it sometimes, and uh, he's, he and Colson are faithful to try to make it work, um, and they don't panic too much and get too resentful about it. But uh, every once in a while, uh, I do that. But, but it was, this was like, no, it's just, this would be too much. It'd be too much to say, guys, could you by any chance Sunday morning do Mighty Fortress? I just think it would work. It would be great, and so I didn't, and I decided, on Tuesday when we meet, I'll ask him, could we do it next week? And then I get here this morning, and they're practicing Mighty Fortress. You'd be amazed how often that happens, that kind of thing happens. And so um, uh, our lack of, sometimes my lack of preparation does not uh, hinder the Holy Spirit very much. And so um, it really is a beautiful thing. So the fact that we got to do that, and you know, those of you who know, you know, you've done any study, you know that if Luther had had electric guitar, he totally would have written that in to Mighty Fortress. You, if, you've, if you've studied Luther at all, you know that's he would have had he would have had the full hard rock thing going for uh, for his songs. All right, so I'm um, jumping into <clears throat> this 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 passage in 1 Peter. I'm going to lay some groundwork, and it's going to connect all these pieces together. I hope, and the, the piece that's going to connect all this, which actually connects all of the Christian faith in some very significant ways. It's something that sometimes, especially in the evangelical world, we miss because we don't think in these terms, especially in the West here in America, and that is this idea of a kingdom. Um, when, we're done, when we're done with 1 Peter, and then we've got some stuff, and, and then I'll probably be taking a sabbatical in the spring, and then when we get back from that, we'll probably start up with 2 Peter and teach through 2 Peter, but one of the things I really am considering a sermon series on somewhere down the road is on the kingdom. Um, it's, it's a powerful concept, and it is, it is inextricably linked to Jesus' gospel, the one that he went with all the time. You may think of Jesus as walking around all the time teaching just about kind of random stuff, about being nice to one another for a change, and certainly he did that, but he did it always under the heading of the kingdom. Again, that's tough for us. Um, so listen, for example, Matthew 4.23, So he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So notice, his gospel was about a kingdom. Um, We have a tough time here in America because we live in this thing called a democratic republic. Um, So I'll take just a second and and correct all the people in the media who keep referring to us as a democracy. Um, We are not a democracy. Anytime you hear someone say that, they are misinformed or agenda-driven. One of the two. We are not a democracy. We are a republic. We have democratic features to our republic. We have a representative feature to our republic that has a democratic root. But in the end, what we are as a republic, a democracy, is a rule by the people, or rather a reju- rule by the majority of the people, sometimes referred to as a rule of the mob, if you're not careful, right? <clears throat> our founders knew that, so they put in a protection, and what they did is said, we're going to be a republic, which means the rule of law. In other words, every wanting, no matter what all the Americans decide, there's a law that decides instead. And we would have to somehow figure out how to change the law in order to do certain things. That's what it means to be in a democratic republic, is the law is supposed to transcend everything else. Now, that being said, here's what makes it hard. I teach a, a political science, a government and speech class, about every four years for a group of homeschool students. And the hard thing about us as Christians with that is we live in a democratic republic, but where, citizenship, where our citizenship is actually held in a monarchy. We actually um, live in a kingdom with a king. That's what we as Christians proclaim. And it's, sometimes it's tough because being in a monarchy and being part of a democratic republic doesn't always play well together. Sometimes that's a real challenge for us. It can be really difficult that we have a king who our, our loyalty to him transcends our loyalty to um, even the law, uh, the man's law, or certainly to human opinions. And so it's, it's a real challenge to us at times, there's no doubt about it, and we wrestle with that. What Jesus teaches us about is how to live in that kingdom within whatever culture or political system we live in. Obviously, the people at the time lived under a monarchy, or at least under, actually under an empire um, at the time that, that Peter was writing this stuff. And so he's saying, listen, you've got got an emperor and you need to honor him, but also keep in mind fundamentally what you are are citizens of a kingship. As I understand it, although apparently there's some argument about this, that the legend is that one of the many battle cries during the War of Independence was no king but Jesus. Uh, The founders didn't have a problem with kings. They had a problem with two kings. Um, They wanted only one king, and that was Jesus, and then another establishment level below that that didn't involve a king. Um, because I created too, many, too much problems for them. So that's what we're dealing with. And think about all of Jesus' words that show the significance of this. So just a, a smattering of a few. Unless one is born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. My kingdom is not of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let the little ones come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Our Father... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you see it? It is everywhere. It's a uniting factor to the gospel of Jesus Christ is this concept, the kingdom. So I'm working my way to what I think Peter is doing in 1 Peter. Um, Here we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, The gospel is inextricable to the kingdom, and the kingdom is his, and the kingdom is good news. In fact, here's one way. (laughs) The sociology of the kingdom is different from ours, and that is good news. The cultural status of the kingdom is different than ours, and that is good news. The relationship between leaders and followers is different in the kingdom than it is in the world, and that is good news. Last week when Craig gave one of his pro tips was husbands learning to ask on a regular basis, maybe daily, every morning and every afternoon, how can I serve you? What could I do for you? What can I take care of? And that that's one of the pictures. That's one of his pro tips. What can I do for you? Where where does that come from? Not to drop names, but Jesus said so. In Mark 10, verse 42, we get this concept. And Jesus called to them and said to them. Now this again, these are Jesus' disciples. This is the big 12, the original ones. And he gathered them up. And he's like, okay, boys, huddle up. I need to explain something to you. Now remember in Mark, the disciples are essentially the comic relief. Um, if you've not read the book of Mark recently through that lens, and we talked through Mark, recognizing they never know what's going on. They never understand Jesus. They're always tripping over their feet. And so more, more than, if you can imagine, more than once, they have conversations about who, who is the most important one of the 12. How you could have that more than once is impressive. But, I mean, they're humans, so we all do that. So Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, to whom all authority is given on heaven and earth, uses that authority to serve. So that the authority structure within the church, or the authority structure within the home, in any any God-blessed, healthy authority structure, anyone who's following the kingdom model would say this, I'm in charge, that means I get to decide who serves, and I choose me. That's the authority structure that Jesus lays out there. This is the reversal. In the world, in the worldly mindset, if I'm the one in charge, I get my way. In the kingdom mindset, if I'm in charge, I give my life away. That's the idea. Me being the authority in my home just means I don't get my way most of the time. That's the idea behind authority in the kingdom. That's the structure that's there when Jesus defines us. It's important for us to understand this when we look at husbands and wives or, or servants and masters, is that this is His concept within the kingdom. Serve, being in charge means you just get to be the one who serves. That's His picture. He modeled it for us. That's what He did. The economic plan of the kingdom is good news. Look at the investment plan. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Everything you could ever want, you will get. Some on earth, sometimes a hundredfold what you could have ever gotten otherwise. If not on earth, in eternity. I love this picture. As a marriage therapist, um, I consider Matthew 6.21 maybe the most important thing that anyone has ever said or written about marriage counseling. Um, I actually think all the other stuff could be thrown out compared to this if we could just get this. In Matthew 6, 21, right before he says that other passage, Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, he's talking in his passage about investing, as you just saw, in the kingdom. That you would say, Listen, my, my treasure is going into the kingdom, so my heart will follow. But I think this generally applies to all kinds of things. That when we say, What's hard for me? What's difficult for me? What costs me a lot? I'm going to invest that in the things where I want my heart to go. When I have couples come in for marriage counseling and they come in, one of my favorite things is is when a spouse, especially if it's a husband, comes in and says, I'm just not in love with her anymore. Like, right, I mean, you're here. Obviously, that's I mean, I'm not I'm not impressed somehow by that. That's not some big revelation. You're in counseling. And so so what are you gonna do? The question is, what do we do about that? So one of the things I love to do with a husband in a situation like that is I say, call your wife or text your wife and have her carve out a weekend about two months from now, okay? Just carve it out. Tell her, I've am gonna, I'm gonna, I've got this weekend planned. I'm going to take it. Now, you and I are going to plan the weekend of her life. What are her favorite things? Where would she want to go? What would be the very most blessed thing that you could possibly do? Like, what would be the cool experiences for her? What would be um, whatever? I remember we were talking about Paul's sabbatical he just did. We were like, Paul, what's, what's something you're thinking about doing? He's like, listen... Jill's always want to take a balloon ride. So that's the one thing I know we're going to figure out. Like, okay, good luck. With, I mean, you've got to figure out a balloon ride, right? And so, so that's the, what I'm talking about. Listen, I'm going to put my treasure here. I'm going to put my energy here. How do I make this happen? So what it would be those things? And so over the next month or two, we're planning. We're online together. We're calling hotels or, or bed and breakfast, whatever. And we're setting up this, this weekend of her life, the weekend for her to remember. Remember, she's getting none of this. She knows nothing about this. It's all going to be a big surprise to her. And by the way, very often he knows none of the answers to any of the questions. Where would she want to go? What would be her favorite color? What's her favorite flower? What kind of food does she like? What's her favorite? I'm doing all these things. And he's like, nothing, got nothing, 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 nothing. I'm like, okay, it's time to go into James Bond mode. you got to start spying out, finding the answers to these questions. And so the first few weeks is usually him just learning about his wife. Strategy, money, time, energy, consideration, thought. These are our treasures. And what's wild is to watch him fall more in love with his wife over the next few months. She knows nothing about this. She's not changing her behavior. It's it's one of my principles in marriage that if you're in a boring marriage, it's because you're a boring person. It's not because you're married to a boring person. It's because you're a boring person. If you were investing your treasure where you should be, your heart would be all here. And I have found this to be true over and over again. The reality and practicality of this is huge. Jesus' message within the kingdom. And he's saying, listen, and that's just marriage. Now imagine if your treasure was going into the kingdom as he saw fit. When you say right now, how could I be a blessing to those people in my life? Those aren't just thoughts for us as believers. We invest there in eternity, and humans are eternal. You want to you enjoy church more? Invest in church. You want to enjoy your family more? Invest in your kids and in your family. You want to enjoy, na- enjoy your neighborhood more? You want your heart to be more in your community? Then, then give money and time and energy and strategy and sweat and blood and tears into that. The justice system is also good news, and that's where we get to 1 Peter. The justice system in the kingdom is good news. Ready? Finally, all of you, starting in verse 8, 1 Peter um, 3, verse 8. um, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I love this. So this is proof that Peter is, in fact, a preacher. Look at 1 Peter 3, 8. begins with the word, Finally. He is less than halfway through the letter. Finally, this is like me saying, okay, I'm going to close on this thought. That's like a two-minute warning in football. You're like, nope, another half hour, right? That's what that means. Finally, let me wrap up here, and more than half the book is still left to go. Um, Okay, finally, all of you. So if you listen to Craig's sermon, Craig referenced this verse, and he said, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'm pretty sure that the phrase all of you there in the Greek means... All of you. I checked. Turns out in the Greek it means all of you. This is for everybody. Slaves, you got it? Good. Wives, you got it? Good. Husbands, you got it? Good. Okay, now all of us. This part. You figured out how to apply what it means to follow Christ as a wife? Good. How about a husband? Yes. A servant? Yes. A master? Good. Now, everyone else including those I've said before. Are you ready? All of us have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, these are great translations when you look at them. But we lose a little bit of the art in the translation. In the Greek, these are each single words. This is, this, is a, this is a cadence. This is Peter saying, finally, all of you, boom, 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 boom like pillars or core values in a business. When a business says, this is who we are, our school says, this is who we are. I know that, the, um, like I speak at the chapel at Brookhill, and you guys do, is there, do we have any Brookhill people who know the, whatever they're called, the charge? Anybody know off the top of your head? No, we had somebody in the first service who knew them. But anyway, it's like, these are our pillars. These, these things. Bam, 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 bam. Your business probably has it. Your church has it. We've got pillars here. We've got core values here. This is really, in my opinion, this is Peter saying, okay, you want to make a t-shirt out of it? You want something you can remember? You want some core values? It's this in the Greek. Finally. So he's just done all this, and he says, finally, all of you. Unity. Sympathy. Friendship. Tenderness. Humility. That's what he says in the Greek. Unity. Unity. Sympathy, friendship, tenderness, humility. These are core principles of the Christian walk. This is what it looks like for Christians to relate to one another. We do so in unity and sympathy, in friendship and tenderness and humility. So let's break these down. Unity of mind immediately, of course, especially here, we go to Philippians chapter 2. It's a passage that many of us have memorized in an effort to understand how to relate to one another well. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 16. We even have a special shirt you get. If you memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 16. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, in alignment, pulling in the same direction, working towards the same goal, uh, Mark and I are working on a, a book right now, and one of the th- principles that he was struck by and wanted to bring it back to is that we used to go canoe on the uh, Buffalo River, and, uh, and he talks about this. How he, he wanted to talk about how, how you do not going to get sideways, and, you've, and if you get sideways in the river, you're, you're in big, big trouble. You've got to paddle together and in alignment and, and working towards the same goal. You get to where one of you is pulling one way and the other pulling the other way, it, it's a train wreck waiting to happen, or rather a canoe wreck waiting to happen. That's, that's going to happen. When I was asked to come interview at the church, the first conversation I had with a couple of leaders in the church to ask me if I was willing to come interview for some role at the church is, is they said, we, we think maybe you're the right guy for this job. Here's the deal. We're a church full of sled dogs. We all pull. We just all pull in different directions. And we really need someone to help guide us, which way should we pull? Because we all kind of need to be pulling in the same way. When you all pull in all directions, where do you go? Nowhere. And so there's a stagnation that happens with that. We need to be in unity of mind. So there's my favorite way to, to teach this. We just sang the doxology, we're going to sing it again. The doxology was actually written in 1674. Ironically, we all think of it as like being ancient, like from the 300s, but it was actually put together in 1674 by an Anglican priest who wrote hymns, and at least 3 of his hymns, the last line, so the hymn is different, but the last line of every one of his hymns of these 3 hymns was the doxology. Um, that, that means Mighty Fortress is actually older than the doxology. It was written before the doxology. Um, so when we're going to sing it, but the first time we're going to sing it, we're going to sing it in uniformity. We're all going to sing the melody, right? Ready?
1: Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We won't even do
0: the Amen because it's no fun in uniformity. Alright, so now... That's uniformity. And if you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you would say that's how church should sing every song. In perfect uniformity. I, I, I think he's wrong about that. He's confusing unity for uniformity. And those aren't the same thing. I think that's more German than it is Christian, to be perfectly honest, in his mind. So what I would say is unity means that we are singing the same things to the same people. But we don't have to sing it in exactly the same way. So now, if you know parts, and, and the, the fuller we can fill the room, the better. So if you know parts, if you know different parts, sing out the parts, okay? I'm going to break into the part, and I hope that doesn't throw you off too much, but I'm going to, because I love doing that too. You ready?
1: Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here be. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Worse?
0: What do you think? No, better. Uniformity is, Unity is better than just uniformity. This is what we're called to, unity of mind. The same God, the same worship. We may do it with different notes. Ephesians 4 breaks this down. In fact, if you could study the the entire chapter of Ephesians 4 to really get a sense for what Paul thinks about this. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is a big deal in the Christian world. There is one body And one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That would be uniformity. That's what creates the unity is us pursuing these same one things. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The rest of the chapter breaks down gifts, the amount of faith, our roles, our ministries, our passions are broken down because they aren't the same. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is a hand. Unity would be a whole church full of eyes. I mean, uniformity would be. Unity is a full body made up of different parts and different organs. Here's the hard part. Guys, this is important. Church, listen to me. Unity is hard. It must be intentional. It is scary. It is risky. It is painful. It is sacrificial. And it, listen, never happens naturally in human community. Never. It is never the natural state of human community to live in unity. We are defined by our divisions, by our brokenness, by our isolation. All human relationships lend themselves in that direction without the intentional energy of the people involved maintaining the bond of peace. It's always going to be the bent. That's how that's going to work. We guard against contention and division passionately, carefully that you are not, this is important, I want you to hear this, you are not unified, the unity does not come in the church from me. It's not that the pastor cannot, I've got, to, I've got my own junk. I'm, I'm right there with you having to fight to make these things happen, to work to make these things happen. I've got to restore relationships and work hard to make sure I can take communion with you people and you feel comfortable taking communion with me. I'm I'm not the the sacrificial lamb. I'm just another one of the people who needs a sacrificial lamb. Our unity comes in Christ, not in a human. And so that's our unity follows under him that we would say, this is where we're unified, is with him. It is difficult. We must choose to fight for it. We must choose to risk for it. Sometimes it means confront for it. Sometimes it means own and apologize for it. We must guard against it carefully. Unity. Sympathy. Sympathy. Sympathy is a simple concept. It just means to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. In other words, that you care enough to feel it. Within the church, that's what we're called to. This is not pity. It's not a disconnected thing. This is why unity is part of why unity is hard and painful is it requires us to be close enough that when someone else mourns, we mourn. When they hurt, we hurt. Now the good news is we get to also rejoice when they rejoice. We get to rejoice together. There's an old saying that says, um, let's see if I can say it correctly, a, a joy shared is double a joy, and a tragedy shared is half a tragedy. There's something to that. I probably misquoted that, but it's close enough. You get the point. Another one, so sympathy, brotherly love. Brotherly love is just about friendship. The youth, you'll remember when we studied the Greek words here, just is the word philos. So I want to talk about friendship just for a minute I believe, I passionately really believe this, and I try to live this out, that friendship is the only relationship between humans that is eternal. Um, even, so any authority structure falls apart in the kingdom. Eventually, authority structures are all gone between humans. So the fact that I'm the authority in my home, that will go away someday. That's, that authority is temporal. Apparently, marriage does not go on forever into the afterlife. The fact that I'm the, that I'm the boss at the church over certain people, that's just, I, I think of that as, as if, I mean, it's, okay, God's at work here, but I think of it as like a coincidence almost. Like, right now, Paul works for me. Next, next year, I may work for Paul. Like, there's, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing there that's eternal. It's the, the concept of authority is eternal, but the standard of who is an authority to whom is not. Eventually, the org chart is Jesus and everyone else, right? What does last forever is our friendship. What does last forever in my marriage is our friendship. And in fact, our fr- imagine that heaven is a, just this giant place of constantly growing friendships where there is true unity of peace. Can you imagine, if you will, how many of you have relationships? There's people in your life that you think all the time, we ought to hang out more, right? Maybe <laughs> may be in your marriage. Like, we ought to hang out more. We ought to get more time together. I don't know about you, but I have several friends that every time I communicate with them, it's like, you know, we ought to get together. And they're like, yeah, we ought to. And that'll be the same thing we say next year when we, get, when we see each other. You know, we ought to hang out together. Yeah, we ought to. I have several text chains on my, on my uh, phone that are happy birthday, thanks. And the next one is happy birthday, thanks. And the next one is happy birthday, thanks. That's how often we're communicating, apparently, is every birthday. This is, it's, I think it's part of what it is. Can you imagine that in heaven, though, there'll be none of that? There's no prioritizing of time in heaven. You will never be in a hurry again. You'll never feel rushed again. Can you imagine that? Anybody want to come ask Jesus in their heart? (laughs) Like you want to go to heaven? That right there should be enough to sell you. If you're like, oh my, uh, uh, yes. How do I do? How do I experience a second of that? Much less an eternity of that. Imagine the power of a friendship, the power of friendship in an existence where you don't have to hurry. Tender-hearted, strong-hearted, literally in the Greek, of good bowels. In other words, you're not closing off your insides. They think of they think of strength and and heart and stuff like that down here. Like it's it's the core muscles that, that matter. That's where you feel things that you would say, I'm open to that. I'm willing to understand. I'm willing to be influenced. I'm willing to be impacted by you. I'm I'm open to you humble-minded. The King James calls that courteous. This This is key, and I think this comes very close to what Peter was telling husbands. Thinking of how what you do and say impacts others. Realizing how what you do and say impacts others. There's a consequence for how we treat other people. When we lose control and we blast people, they may never recover. There's story after story of, of parents trying to teach children, okay, hammer a nail in a board. You can remove the nail, you can't remove the hole. That's, that is the effects we have. There was a great uh, a book that was, was a pretty good book. The opening was fantastic and great um, by Smalley and Trent called The Hidden Value of a Man years ago. And in it, in the very opening, again, the value of the book right there at the very beginning when they describe Clark Kent in denial of the fact that he's Superman. What would it be like if Clark Kent woke up with amnesia or in denial of the fact that he he, is—he now thinks that he is just Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter, and he doesn't think he's anything more than that? That sounds kind of cute until you realize the devastation that he would create as Superman not living as Superman. When he turns off his alarm clock, he smashes, turns everything on his bedside table into splinters. By the time he leaves for work, his family is all injured. And, and the destruction is total. His house is in pieces. The cat's in the orbit. He is, he is truly just, he is devastating everything around him. And their point is, men, what we say and do carries with it more power than we have the intuition for. We think of ourselves as Clark Kent. We felt powerless most of our lives. The problem is most of the people around us, the things we say and the things we do, carry consequences we can't wrap our brains around. But that's true for women too. The, wife of the, the role of the wife, the role of the mother in, their, in the life of their husband and children is massive. The way they speak, the way we all interact with each other, and Peter is saying, learn to realize, to have this, it's the same root as lowly at heart, which Jesus claims about himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. In other words, humble-minded is this. This is going to be tough for some of you. I am not the most important person in the room. That that is humble-minded. What I have to say may not be the most important thing to be said in the room. My input may not be the most important input in the room. For some of you, you may be like, yeah, I never think that. That may be a a different struggle, but good, good for you. Most of the rest of us, we struggle with this. My preferences may not be the most important preferences in the room. My thoughts, my input, my, my, my person may not be the most important. And then Peter goes on, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. See, so the opposite of evil is blessing. To bless is to ask God to bestow His best on someone. In the Greek, it's the, where we get the word eulogy. What we say over someone who has died. We should bless because we are called to bless, that we could obtain a blessing, Peter says. What is this reference to? I think we're going to have to engage with our, our minds once again as a good Jewish audience to really impact this. The Jewish prophets and songwriters often ask God to bless them, but it often had this pattern Psalm 67 May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known to the earth, your saving power among all the nations. You see the pattern? Bless us that we may then bless others. And I think Peter is making a strongly, deeply Hebrew reference here that, they, that the Jewish people, the Jewish believers would have had to explain to their Gentile friends and family in the, in the church there. Listen to this. He would, they would, somebody find me a, a Genesis scroll. We've got to go way back here. Genesis 12, 1-3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram, not Abraham yet. He's not yet the father of, of many nations. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will, look, bless you and make your name great that you will be a blessing. This is what it meant to be a Hebrew. What it meant to be God's people was you receive a unique blessing from the Lord so that you can be a unique blessing in the world. That's the idea here. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And Peter says, that's not just about the Jewish people. That one applies to all of God's people. You are blessed. Therefore, be a blessing. The opposite here is evil or reviling. It doesn't just mean moral evil to intentionally cause harm, to damage, malicious behavior, to insult, or to slander. James 3 says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. How do you think James really felt about the tongue? The power of our words. Listen to this. It just goes on. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a, here's some more descriptive language, restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it it we curse people who are made in His likeness. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. In other words, Peter's saying, listen, I'm someone who's going to receive a blessing. I'm on my way to receive a blessing. That is my whole life is the path towards receiving this blessing, right? That's the whole idea. What should it be like to interact with me? What kind of a person are you when you're on your way to cash a massive check? You're on your way to pick up your prizes that you won. You're on your way to meet your true love. What would it be like to interact with you under those conditions? You're on your way to go cash a million-dollar check and someone stops and says, like, hey, do you have 20 bucks I could borrow? And you're like, take a 1,000. Right? Man, I'm going ca- to have a million Who needs 20? Take 100. Take 1,000. Generous, over the top, the way we would be. We would interact with people. We'd be a constant blessing to people if we really believed we're going to receive a blessing. That's what it would be like to engage with us. Um, One of the commentaries I use, Ellicott's commentary, summarizes it this way. Bless instead of retorting, for it is more suitable for men who are expected to be blessed. If you're expecting to be blessed... You should be a blessing. That's what it means. For Christian, the temptation to fight back using the same tools and the weapons of the world, feeling justified in doing so. You're a jerk, so I'll be a jerk. You're insulting, so I'll be insulting. We let worldly people or carnal Christians dictate how we act. You judge me according to your own standards and definitions, I'll judge you according to mine. You struck my cheek, so now I strike yours. That is not the justice system of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the many ways what the behavior within the kingdom looks like. Jesus tells them, you stared an eye for an eye, but I say don't resist the one who is evil. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn the other one. If they sue you to take your tunic, give them your cloak too. If they force you to go a mile, go too. Students, our behavior reflects on our rabbi. And our rabbi had some crazy, unworldly ideas about this stuff. It should show in our lives. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. This is, this, that passage is about him being our example. This is how we should face trials and persecution. Ambassadors, our behavior reflects directly on our king. Our king has some pretty countercultural views on human interaction. That should show. And remember that Peter has taught us that we are priests, holy priests, high priests, Our behavior reflects directly on our God, so everything we do is done in the name of Jesus Christ. Whether we like it or not, it is. This is why slaves should submit, why wives should devote, why husbands should sacrifice, because we can and we must, and we must do so with the phrase, in Jesus' name, attached to everything we do. In Jesus' name. So in other words, I would repay your evil with my evil in Jesus' name. I would rail right back at you in my shrillest voice, the most condescending tone, in Jesus' name. You a jerk to me, so I'll be a jerk to you, in Jesus' name. I express my hatred for my political enemies, in Jesus' name. I yell at my children, I bully my wife, I disrespect my husband, I subvert my boss, in Jesus' name. See your problem? Instead, I work diligently for my authority, In Jesus' name. Come on. I call my husband Lord. Oh, shoot. I do not give power to what is frightening. And Bose, by the way, he said frightening. He didn't say, don't be afraid of things that aren't frightening. He said that that, that godly women learn to not be afraid of things that are frightening. That's impressive. I consider my wife above myself. In Jesus' name. I honor my wife. I honor. Bless you in Jesus' name. Now that works. The others don't. How would you be a blessing to your boss or your husband or your wife or your friend or your church or your community? Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't we living that out as part of our identity? Peter then breaks into Psalm, and that song, and that's where we're going to pick up next time, is when he breaks into Psalm, and here's the Psalm that he breaks into. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This question is a question of guidance. Do you want a life that you're happy with? Live it in Jesus' name. Intentionally in unity, with sympathy, with brotherly love, with friendship. This is what we're called to. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, it's what He modeled for us, investing in these eternal things in this kingdom. I suspect there are things right now in each of our lives that if we try to say, I do this in Jesus' name, it sounds horrible and hypocritical and even blasphemous. Don't be like one of the Christians who says, hey, listen, I drive like a lost, horrible, wicked, evil person, so I better not put a fish on the back of my car. You're fixing the wrong problem. Okay? Instead, you should live your entire life in such a way that if people attach in Jesus' name to that, that it's a testimony about who He is. Stand with me, if you will. Probably, if you're like me, this is a time for repentance and confession You may need to come up here and confess and repent the things in your life that you realize you're doing in Jesus' name and that must be deeply offensive. So our our prayer is that whatever that is, God would call us to instead be able to live as Peter has challenged us to through the power of the Spirit. As we pray here in a moment, you may need to respond as we sing. Um, You may need to come here and pray. You may need to pray where you are, listen to what the Spirit is saying. You may need to send a text to somebody apologizing to them setting up a time to sit down and own how you have hurt them. You may need to come across the room and find somebody like that in here. I don't know. It's between you and God's Spirit. Whatever it is that the Spirit leads you in, um, be willing to listen. Father, we're so grateful for those who are modeling even now for us what it means to suffer in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would, you would plant those seeds in us, help, those, help that plant begin to grow in us that we would not try to produce figs from thorn bushes, but instead, through the power of your Spirit, be transformed into something totally new, something that produces those fruit. God, I pray that you would help conform us to the example and the image of our rabbi, of our king, of our God. God, we lay these things before you because only you can accomplish these things in us. Forgive us for all the things in our lives that do not honor you. Transform us, Lord. Help us to repent and turn to a different way. or to ask these things in the name of your magnificent Son, the Lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of time, revealed now in these last days for our sake. It's in His name that we've put our confidence. Amen. So if you need to come do, respond in any of these ways, listen to the Spirit. If you've been through our Welcome Home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can do that this morning as well up here. Um, just listen to what the Spirit has,
1: guys.